Hey everyone, this is Connor Tui with Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance, where we talk about life and leadership, digital transformation, talking to executives, top public sector and government officials, thought leaders, and prominent academics to talk about their careers and their journey of how they got to where they are today. And speaking of today, I'm here in Midtown Manhattan at the Millennium Alliance Studios, happy to be conducting an interview in person for the first time since the pandemic took us all to Zoom. And I'm even more excited to be talking to an old friend of mine from college, from the State University of New York at New Paltz, Jack O'Brien. Jack is currently the content team lead at Health Leaders and will be transferring over to Amadello Communications. Jack has been published in the Washington Examiner, the Altamont Enterprise, the Albany County Post, New Hampshire Journal, the Williston Times, Red Alert Politics, the Legislative Gazette, and the New Paltz Oracle, where he held the role as editor-in-chief. Thanks, Jack, for joining us on the podcast today. I'm so happy to be talking to you, and I'm glad you're here. Absolutely. I'm happy to be talking to you as well. Like Connor said, we were great. <laughs> we were first week college friends, if I, if I recall, from orientation everything, and you know, obviously happy to be here at this point in our career. So happy to talk with you and can't wait for the conversation course and uh, we'll we'll jump right into it today we're going to be talking about healthcare and the impacts that covid had on the health system and uh, for those of you who don't know jack has talked to numerous healthcare executives in some of the most prominent health systems throughout the country so i want to start jack by talking about a good old topic that maybe no one has heard about but covid-19 sounds familiar yeah <laughs> which has affected everybody and everything in the last year and a half. So I want to talk briefly, just in general, about what the impact was on the healthcare system in the United States. What has been the most talked about in terms of what will outlast the pandemic? I think the thing that really sticks out to me, and it, it, it's something that is universal, whether you're a large academic medical center, a, a multi-state system, or even, you know, I think about my hospital back home where I was born, Glens Falls Hospital, like you think of these small community hospitals, everyone took it on the chin. I mean, from a financial perspective, you're never going to make up two months of just shutting down your hospital and not being able to have any sort of procedures other than treating COVID patients. Then there was the switch over to telehealth. There was losing staff members left and right, either due to burnout, trauma, in some cases, death. I mean, that can't be understated in terms of the infection rate among frontline workers. I think the thing that really sticks out to a lot of people is just the harm that COVID caused and, and kind of the the ground shift in terms of what it actually impacted on the health system and, and what that's going to mean going forward. Yeah, because I really do want to talk, I want to talk about everything you just mentioned, because they're all very important and they're all very important to talk about going forward, just in case, uh, you know, we're not even done with this pandemic yet. We still have variants floating around there. Mm -hmm. We still have vaccines that need to be rolled out. And we still have the future and our, the next generations to come that we need to prepare for. So y you brought up, well, 2020 brought up telehealth. Yep. And you just mentioned it in this intro. So that was something that all health, health systems had to implement, even if they were testing it out. Now it's time that health systems make it better mm -hmm. and to keep the momentum going. So... With the rise of telehealth and the emergence of new healthcare technologies, what have you learned from executives that are implementing these systems now? 
the thing that I think has been really key is just kind of what you alluded to, which is that they all have to stand them up on the fly. I mean, I talked to a number of systems that said, yeah, we had something like a telehealth program, and we maybe saw like a handful of patients a month. And mm. even for some of the bigger systems, it was probably a couple hundred patients a month. And suddenly they were seeing a couple hundred patients each day, or even thousands right. of patients each day, because suddenly that's where all the demand was. You couldn't see them in the hospital. They had to be able to roll out and scale these programs. And that was twofold. It was one, getting the trust of the patients to say, oh, I have, you know, I have a hip issue, or I have a heart murmur, I have whatever, and now my doctor is going to have to see me over the phone. They had to trust that they were going to get the care that they, they had been used to receiving in person. On the flip side, it was also some of these physicians who in some cases have been practicing for 40, 50 years, and suddenly you're saying you have to pull out your phone, mm-hmm. you're going to see your patient that way, and you're going to be able to diagnose and be able to treat them and, and do whatever you can virtually. Obviously, that was in an extreme scenario of March until about May of last year. Then we started to see people coming back into the hospital. But that's something that's still been a mainstay. A lot of organizations saw it spike up to around 70 or so percent of all of their visits were virtually. Now it's down to around like in the teens percentage, even somewhere up in the the high 20s. So it's kind of finding that balancing act of saying how much is it going to actually be a mainstay and what are the financial ramifications of that? How much can you really rely on that as a revenue stream going forward? And I think each organization kind of has to balance what their expectations are going forward. Right. And that that makes total sense. And you kind of alluded to this, so I'll bring it up now, which is, you know, obviously telehealth isn't going to be something that everybody can do. And it's not Mm -hmm. something that is sustainable in terms of healthcare delivery. We need physical hospitals, we need doctors to treat patients in their offices. So examining the healthcare now beyond COVID-19, the future of a hybrid patient care model. Yeah, I'm sure you've talked about this too many times. Uh, <laughs> Happy within, to talk about it again. Though. Within the last year, what have you learned about health systems transitioning towards a hybrid care model? What are the pain points going forward? And what that means in bringing together in-person and virtual care practices? Yeah, it's going to rely on a number of factors. And obviously, we're pretty blessed being here in New York City that there's a lot of accessibility to anything, but especially healthcare. We have some great hospitals and health systems that are here in the New York City metro area. But you think about, you know, going back to my hometown or any rural area that you can think of, broadband issues are something that has lingered for years and will continue to harm any sort of efforts to really expand telehealth there. If you're in a place that doesn't get 5G service, how are you suddenly going to be able to rely on a doctor hundreds of miles away to look at an abscess or, you know, deal with some sort of issue that you're having if you don't have that reliable connection. So it's going to take some, I, I in, if, from what I've heard from hospital leaders, but also just the general sense around the country, is some significant investment in extending that broadband access so that hospitals and health systems in some of these far-fetched areas are able to do that. You talk about kind of the balancing act here. I know a lot of hospital system leaders are kicking themselves because, mm, you know, for the better yeah. part of the last decade, they were investing in some of these big campuses, big towers. They were looking at you know, the future of inpatient care, as much as there's been a shift towards outpatient care, they were also saying, hey, we have these facilities and we want to have the top level care that's going to be a magnet to our communities. All of a sudden, March of last year, everyone's home and no one's going to those campuses. So now it's the balancing act of, oh, we put X amount of dollars into our real estate investments into these big functioning campuses. And now people can just go on our phones and be able to you know, hit up a doctor whenever we need to. So it's really kind of saying, like, how much are they really going to look at in-person care going forward as opposed to saying, like, we've seen virtual care works, and God forbid we have another pandemic, but we want to have those capabilities ready at a moment's notice. I know, because you're always thinking, too, about, like, you know, the the patient, the access for the patient, 
So this brings us to our, our next segment, population health. Yeah. This is a tricky one even to talk about in, in terms of tele, telehealth. And as we saw with COVID, your zip code is actually what determined if you even got sick or not, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, you looked all over the maps. The worst hit areas were those that were unprotected. They were communities that were underserved. They were communities that were frontline workers, and they had to go out every day and be confronted with this virus mm-hmm. and unprotected too. How can the population health approach and its elements be embedded in the context of the integrated care delivery for these health systems? I, I think it's one of those things that, like you said, COVID really exposed this kind of this kind of hideous undervalue of healthcare that we all knew existed. That there are, you know, worse quality health outcomes that affect communities of color. And I think certainly the George Floyd protest certainly put right. a, a bigger spot. That was on. right. That was right in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Whole that, thing. Was, that was May going into June of last year. So it really put a spotlight on healthcare disparities. And I know that even in 2019, I had a roundtable with some CFOs and the CFO of Christiana Care down in Delaware had told me that they had done a study of a one mile, five mile, and 15 mile radius outside of their hospital. And what they found was with each concentric circle going around, there was a decrease in life expectancy. That's and insane. That's, that's insane. And as you're going into some of these more hard hit, impoverished areas, we were talking before we started the pod that you know prior to me moving to New York City, I'd lived in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is the poorest city in Massachusetts. Mm. And we were extremely hard hit by the uh, pandemic. We have a high immigrant population up there. It was one of those things where people don't have insurance, so they don't have immediate access to hospitals. In some cases, they're scared that if they do go to a hospital and try and access it, there's a risk of deportation. We were still under the Trump administration at the time. So there are all these factors that you think, like, we are lucky with being full-time employed and we have access to healthcare. And, and for some of us, we've had that our entire lives. We don't even think twice about that. But when you think about a person of color trying to access. And then even once they get that access, there's just the the chance of healthcare or medical racism that comes into play too, which I think a lot of organizations are trying to reckon with and say, hey, we haven't been perfect for a while. In some cases, we have harmed these communities. How do we go about that and try and, and build that trust back with our patient populations? It's taking all sorts of different forms, but I think organizations are really trying to focus on that going forward. Yeah. And that makes sense too. And I think it's important to recognize, uh, you know, mental health and the mental well-being of everyone, especially the year that we've we've had. Uh, so, you know, what have you learned in terms of how health systems are examining now the rise of this virtual aspect of behavioral health care? Yeah, it's. It, I don't think anyone went through last year and wasn't stressed in some sort of way. I think we all we all had. Who's it. ever out there that wasn't stressed? Let's talk. Yeah, please write in a letter and tell us why you weren't stressed. Because I I know I was. I'm sure you were. I'm sure everyone right. that's listening was. And it was one of those things that again, COVID. It was something that existed beforehand. It's not like people weren't stressed on a on a daily basis and needed that recognition. But I think hospitals and health systems really looked at what was affecting their frontline workers with the stress and trauma they dealt with, but also their patient populations, looking at the economy collapsing in real time. The air suddenly became poison to a, you know, in a really crude way to think about it. And so there was a focus on, okay, people are going to behavioral health services more and more in recent years. So that's already become a hot commodity. You see it intersecting with the rise of virtual care and the popularization of telehealth. It was just a natural fit. But I think going back to your example about population health and social determinants of health, if I am going in for a visit with my therapist, I'm in their space and I've made my 
time to go to the appointment. I'm, I'm in their own zone. And that's how they can examine me. And that's not to say that's not a great way of doing it. But when I'm on a video call and my therapist is looking at me sitting on my couch in my apartment, they do get a true sense, even just that little bit of window into what you're dealing with. You know, if they see cardboard boxes of pizza all around and they see, you know, a pipe dripping or something, that can give them a real sense of, oh, you're able to come to my therapy session and we're able to deal with those issues now. But now I see where you go home to and the factors that actually influence your health and what's to say that you don't have mold growing or you have an abusive household or, you know, there's noise and stuff. So it's really given, at least from the leaders that I've spoken with, saying that it's not only a revenue line in terms of they can actually monetize that, but they can also get a better insight into the patient that they're dealing with and try and put solutions in there that are really going to affect their lives. You know, during the last year, one of the, the hardest job was being a nurse mm-hmm. or working at a healthcare system, working at an urgent care, what have you. I don't think anybody who wasn't a nurse or didn't work in healthcare wanted that job. No, I certainly didn't. And of course, you know, with the months following with all the stress and all the burnout that the COVID crisis caused, there were so many reports of nurses leaving and changing career career paths and going in another direction. And it, it, the job was just too much for them and they weren't compensated correctly. So what what have you learned in terms of what executives at leading organizations, leading health systems, big hospitals, what are they doing to ensure that the nurses are taken care of and that their talent in, inside their own organizations are getting their care taken care of? Absolutely. So before I answer, I, I will say that I recommend that anyone listening go and check out Healthier's coverage. Our nursing editor, Carol Davis, does a great job speaking with CNOs and um, you know directors of nursing at various hospitals, and she's really gotten to cover certainly the past six months how, as the pandemic is subsiding in some sort of way, and like you said, we're not out of the woods yet, but people are starting to look at what that post-COVID world is going to look like. She's done a great job of speaking with these leaders in terms of those initiatives. In the conversations I've had primarily with CFOs, because that's who my beat is, there's been an increased focus on the actual employee compensation formula. And that applies, one, for nurses, but also for uh, physicians and just broader administrative talent. One thing that has been really recognized is the fact that a lot of these people, these staffers, felt like they were kind of left out in a very vulnerable situation, whether it was the lack of PPE, the lack of pay, just the, the trauma of seeing body after body coming by them, hallways filled up with people on ventilators and you know trying to save the lives of the infirmed and those who are vulnerable, that's that's something that we can't even, and I wouldn't want to even think about or try and experience. So that's something that where they're trying to come back and say, like, you know, however we can provide the services, like you said, that are mental health based and really focused on trying to build morale back. That's something that's getting increased focus and increased investment in a lot of the hospitals that I'm talking with. Another thing that they're focusing with is kind of the recruitment and retention rate. A lot of these hospitals and health systems that are not, you know, you think the UPMCs, the Kaiser Permanentes, the Providence St. Joseph's, these big health systems, they didn't have to go through layoffs like a, a number of even regional players had to just because right. costs were there. They were already dealing with short margins. So now they're looking at it and saying, like, we laid you off or we furloughed you. How do we bring you back into the fold? How do we still have that trust with you that you're willing to come back to us, even though in a moment of crisis, we had to let you go, which is difficult for anybody because we're all looking at our financial position as people just saying, like, we need to keep going. We're in the middle of the worst thing since the Depression. So there's kind of that that give and take that hospitals are really trying to balance back with. I haven't heard anybody that's had like a silver bullet for it. It's really a kind of a market by market situation. 
I have a couple more. First of all, I want to thank you for joining me today because this has uh, been a great so far conversation, and uh, I'm glad you you joined us because you have a lot of input and a lot of knowledge in terms of talking to healthcare executives. Uh, you brought a lot to the table. So this is something I know that you've covered a lot, and especially in your beat because you do, do talk to CFOs of major mm-hmm. health organizations, is what the healthcare's financial recovery looks like. Uh, tech's role in the resurgence and maybe some projections to come. Here's a big topic that I don't think anybody really still knows what to do in terms of how to cut costs without cutting the quality of care. Mm-hmm. And how do how do health systems integrate, you know, a long-term recovery plan? So any CFO that I, I speak with, it's usually my first two questions is what are you doing to try and at this point, diversify revenue. It's not even revenue generation anymore. It's like, how do you make sure that it's not all bundled up into inpatient elective care, which is what happened last year, and that got wiped off the books. And I think there's a real sense of whether it's telehealth or whether it's looking at different opportunities that are outside of care delivery. They're trying to diversify, so God forbid we get you know, another pandemic down the line. They see that all wiped out, and it goes away. But the second question is, to your point, how do you reduce costs and reduce you know, that, that expense line without harming patient care, which is obviously a, a priority even on the CFO side because they know that that's the number one thing the hospital has to offer. They don't care about what your balance sheet is. They care about what the outcomes that you're delivering to patients are. I've, I've seen a number of approaches. I've seen a number of ways that hospitals are trying to, kind of going back to the point about having these large campuses are trying to sell off facilities and really be strategic in terms of where their investments are, a bigger push towards outpatient care, which is a lower cost setting. You've seen a number of health systems, I think of Northwell here in New York, expanding into the urgent care market. You can't drive by a strip plaza and not see an urgent care, certainly being here in the metro area, but I'm sure anywhere across the country, you're going to see urgent cares everywhere. And they're realizing that, oh, People can get treated immediately there. They're going to get quality outcomes in its affordable place than, say, the Tisch Hospital of NYU Langone that's over there on First App, which is a great hospital. It's not to diminish it. It's just to say that you don't need to have that big footprint when people can go get the immediate care they need to. And if they need an advanced level of care, then you bring them to the hospital. But if they need something more immediate, they don't have to be magnetized to the hospital. And again, I'm speaking from the New York perspective. You think about being out in, say, Colorado out in, and somewhere in the West, where it can be miles and miles, if not hours, between you and a major medical center. That's its own challenge because then you have to drive there, and that's its own thing. So going back to telehealth, it's more investment in there. It's a less costly place. The reimbursement side is a challenge, whether the insurers are going to continue that. CMS has said that they're going to keep the waivers in place for now. I think a lot of people that I've spoken with on the healthcare side say that you know you can't put the genie back in the bottle. We've already right. seen tell out that there, how much that's going to continue to be a factor is going to depend on what the insurers are there for. I think that there is a significant investment from some insurers as it relates to certain services, but I know that other hospitals want to go out there and say, we want to expand our service lines. We want to expand what we can do telehealth-wise. It's just whether the insurers are going to reimburse on that side. Well, and that's and yeah. that, and that's been a, a topic of this whole discussion is you know the collaboration between the payers and providers. Yep. We already mentioned how telehealth has effect, has impacted uh, health systems' decisions going forward, how they have implemented it, and how to make it better. Actually, a few weeks ago, we had our thought leader, Michelle Chulik, who is the former CEO of Wyoming Medical Center, on our podcast to talk about the rapid shift from in-person healthcare to telehealth. The healthcare system has to look different going forward after COVID-19. 
It does. No doubt about it. And if, and if I can add one more thing there that just from what I've talked to CFOs about is that we were talking earlier about the kind of the retention, the recruitment of the clinical staffers, the frontline workers. Another thing to really consider is the administrative side. And you think about your revenue cycle people, your billing people, the people you never really think about when you think of a hospital, but they ultimately play a key part because they're part of the organizational, operational, financial churn. They don't necessarily have to be where the hospital is anymore. I was talking to the CFO of UAB Health System back in December, and she was saying that both an advantage and a challenge now going forward is saying, we can recruit from wherever. You, Connor Tui, if you're a revenue cycle administrator and you know how to do the billing process, you could be in demand for NYU Langone, Memorial Sloan Kettering, anyone in the New York area, or you could get a call from Peace Health out in Washington saying, hey, as long as you're willing to work a nine to five and be able to do this for us, we'll hire you regardless of where you live because you don't have to be in the office. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is, oh, I can work from wherever and hospitals can recruit from wherever. But now the challenge is you're not just competing in your market anymore. You're competing against wherever. We had our CFO exchange down in Florida and I was talking to a CFO from Louisiana. He was saying, oh, it's great. You know, a lot of people don't want to live necessarily outside of Baton Rouge or, you know, it's always been a challenge to try and recruit them from wherever to be in a more rural part of Louisiana. He goes, but now I'm not just competing against everyone in that market. I'm competing against all of you. And he's talking to CFOs from Iowa, New Hampshire, you name it. So there is that sort of thing where it's like, it's great. It's open the playing field. And now you don't have to house all of your employees on one campus. They can be wherever. But now you're competing against everybody and you're trying to pay, you know, if you're going to take a job here, you still have to, you have to still have a New York city way of life. Oh yeah. But if, but if I'm a health system in West Virginia trying to get you, I have to understand, oh, it's going to cost a pretty penny. So there is that kind of balancing act, too. Right. That there's, is there such a thing as a talent pool going in 2021 and yeah. beyond? It's just the further flattening of that talent pool and what that looks like and the work-from-home life. You know, that all factors in not only for the healthcare community, but I think for the broader business community as well. Right. So, I mean, again, as I said, this has been a wonderful conversation, and you've had so many interesting interviews with healthcare executives, CFOs, CEOs of some of the leading healthcare organizations in this country. Jack, what was your most memorable interview that you've had during your time at Health Leaders? What did you learn most and what were your key takeaways? Absolutely. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. I know your your intro there was talking about all these hospital leaders and health system leaders, and I don't want to take anything away from them because they've been wonderful to me. A lot of them have been great sources, and some of them represent you know the biggest organizations in this country, and they do great work. But my most memorable one by far has to be Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong, who is uh, an inventor, a, a visionary, just a, a true healthcare leader. He owns the Los Angeles Times. He owns the San Diego Union Tribune. He owns part of the Lakers. Oh, wow. Which I had to ask, you know, we had a great conversation about his work in terms of trying to cure diseases. He's already been a leading expert in terms of dealing with diabetes. He's been trying to expand that into cancer for a number of years. And then obviously COVID came by and he's trying to put his considerable resources towards there, you know, still waiting on what the results of that are going to be. I think me, along with a lot of other industry observers are, are looking at that. But, you know, we had a very interesting conversation about that, what his influences were. You know, a question we always ask when we do our magazine feature is, who are your inspirations? And he named off a few you know, he named off a researcher that he studied under at Caltech. He named off Lee Iacocca, who used to run Chrysler. And then he named off Burt Bacharach, the singer, which completely <laughs> caught me off guard because yeah, I'm right. like, oh, that's that's that. 
And then, I, you know, as this, you know, we're both big sports fans, so it's hard to look somebody who owns a sports team and not ask, like, what's it like to own the Lakers? And he's owned part of them for 10 years now. And talking about, you know, when Magic Johnson called him asking if he would be interested in buying a share and getting to play on the court with Ron Artest and, wow. you know, being there for Kobe's last game mm. as a Laker. You know, it was just a yeah. very interesting all, all across the board. He's a true healthcare renaissance man that way. Wow. So and then and then so that's the Health Leaders Finance Podcast. Yes, we, uh, Health Leaders Finance Podcast. We have not nearly as many episodes out as you, but we're 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 trying to catch up. Uh, we also have two other ones. We have the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle Podcast and the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership Podcast, which focuses exclusively on uh, women uh, C-suite members. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thanks for mentioning that. We'll we'll be sure to give that a shout out in the description of this podcast. Appreciate that. But Jack, thank you very much for coming on the Millennium Life podcast. It's great to do an interview in person again. Absolutely. Great to see your face. Great to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Take care. Thank you.